Hi, Damien Marcus from 100 Not Out here. MP. Yes, Damo. We all know the importance of having a diary, but who wants a boring old day planner? Not me. Enter the journey of me. Ta-da! The incredible eight-month wellness journal designed especially for wellness peeps like you. Yes, Damo, this beautiful eight-month wellness guide is filled with questions, planners, exercises, reflective notes, and more. Endorsed by the Up For A Chat girls and loved the world over, the journey of me is a must-have if you're ready to live your best life for life. To purchase your very own journey of me and receive a free set of inspirational postcards, simply enter the code COUCH at www.wellandnew.com. That's www.w-e-l-l-i-n-e-u-x.com. TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to The Abnormal Psychologist, the show that shares everyday insights into getting the best out of your mind, body, and lifestyle. Now, please welcome your host, The Abnormal Psychologist herself, Carrie Thompson-Casey. Hello, and how are you going? Welcome to another episode of The Abnormal Psychologist with me, your host, Carrie Thompson-Casey, the show where we are giving you the how-to to to get the best out of you. And today, I'm really pleased to be talking to Jackie Short, who is a counselling psychologist and director of Sydney Centre for Creative Change. But what really made me curious about Jackie's work was an article she wrote about play therapy and working creatively with children. So welcome, Jackie. Thank you, Carrie. It's lovely to be here. So Jackie, tell us a bit about yourself and how you got into this wonderful area. When I was in high school, I really thought I'd like to be an astronaut. It's (laughs) It's a fantasy that most kids grow out of by upper primary, but I think because I was a young person around the time of the space shuttle launch, I really thought that eventually I could be up there and I still harbour a secret hankering to to (laughs) space, even though I've seen Apollo 13 a few too many times and saying that I probably wouldn't want to. But my maths marks in year 11 and 12 made me realise pretty quick that I didn't have that sort of aptitude. But what I did have an interest in, in addition to space travel and aeronautical stuff, was, was psychology and was counselling people and certainly working with children and that's something that I I guess I've grown into. So I left my small high school and went to a a large Sydney university and did undergraduate psychology and learned something about working with people but probably didn't really learn counselling skills and certainly play therapy skills until much after when I'd done a few different jobs, welfare, research and school counselling positions and found myself working with children and young people and realising that what I did know was not nearly enough to really make a difference, which is when I started doing some investigations into play therapy and other creative ways of engaging and working therapeutically with children, teenagers and adults. Yeah. Great. So that's amazing. So, and so where to from there? So what, did you, did you create the Sydney Centre or is that something that... Um, you work there or? Yeah, I, I set up the Sydney Centre for Creative Change about about 10 years ago after I'd been running creative therapy training programs for health professionals in Sydney. And I've, I've been doing that for, for around 15, 16 years now. I, I realised myself that while 
the grounding in psychology was a really positive one. It wasn't really enough to, to one, do good counselling work and to two, to have ways of engaging in playful and in, in useful creative ways clients in therapy. So I did lots of short courses myself. I went to the States and attended some conferences in play therapy and met some fabulous people over there. I I did a master's in adult education after I'd done some traveling after my study and a couple of years of work and met lots of fabulous people overseas and realized there was lots and lots of ways of, of helping people make changes in their life that were about counseling, but but weren't necessarily about sitting on a sitting on a chair and just talking or lying on a couch and remembering dreams and reassociating around those. So there was there was something else and other ways of of having fun in therapy and being able to think beyond just what the current reality offered and and certainly using play for children and other creative forms were really valuable in in um in helping people get get unstuck effectively. Okay, so who would you say are some of the pioneers or leaders in play therapy with children? I think some of my some of pe- the people who've really inspired me have been people like Virginia Axline, who wrote the book Dibs. Ah, yes, In Search of Self, Dibs in Search of yeah. Self. Yeah, that's it. And um, um, no doubt you've read that or heard about it. And it's yes. a lovely uh, narrative of her work with a, a young boy who was. Um, virtually selectively mute and was super intelligent but just wasn't coping very well with 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 uh, preschool and wasn't relating well with, with his teachers or any of his peers and was experiencing a lot of difficulty at home but uh, Axeline didn't really engage with the parents directly she had the opportunity to work with this little boy and you know in a relatively short amount of time I think she worked with him for close to a year and in that time, it doesn't sound like a short amount of time, but given the extreme behaviour problems that he was exhibiting, through forming a, a supportive and a caring and a playful relationship with him, she enabled him to be able to share with her what was really the matter and to be able to resolve those issues for himself such that he could actually engage well and be a productive part of his school. Okay, yeah. So... It's interesting that you say that because one of the first points I wanted to talk to you about about the article was I love the way you use the culture, the words, the culture of childhood. And I think that's something that as a parent or working with children, sometimes we forget what it's like to be a year one kid or to be a nine-year-old. Like what's the culture of other nine-year-olds relating to other nine-year-olds? So can you tell us a bit about that sensitivity to the culture of childhood? I I think one of the best ways I can talk about that is to illustrate it in my own life. I I still have a really strong memory of being at a family picnic with extended family, who some of whom we saw a lot of and some of whom we didn't see that much of. And we'd all had something to eat and I just discovered softball and I thought it was just the best possible game and everybody could play no matter how much they wanted to run or what their abilities were. And I was trying to engage my aunts and uncles and my parents and my grandparents in this game of softball. And I knew everybody knew how to play, but nobody really wanted to. And I think I managed to get my my aunt and, and my grandfather up and everyone else kept saying, soon, soon, we'll just finish this drink and we'll just finish <laughs> this conversation. And, and I just Sounds familiar. <laughs> I just couldn't. And I know I say that now to, to my <laughs> But I, I just couldn't, I really couldn't fathom why they didn't want to play. And I was looking at all these overweight and inert adults thinking 
this is so much fun. How could you not want to do this? And I and I made a little mental promise to myself at age nine that I'd always say yes to a child's invitation to play because I just knew how important it was. And I try and honour that as much as I can now. Even wow, that's lovely. Having the adult conversations that I do because I know how important it is to kids and I know that they have a different sense of reality than, than we do. So they engage in different ways. They have a different sense of time. They have a different sense of space. They work with their bodies differently. And because they are working and living from that different culture, if I am to understand them and help them, I need to be able to step into that culture to some extent. So if I was working with people from a Muslim culture or from uh, an Indian culture, people who had different religions to me or different ethnicities to me, I'd have to be somewhat sensitive to where they're coming from. And if I'm going to do a lot of work with them, I need to be able to speak that language. I need to be able to understand basic cultural traditions. I need to know that I don't shake hands with people who don't shake hands as a way of saying hello, just those basic sort of greeting things. So if I've got those sensitivities to adult culture, surely I'd have those sensitivities to child culture as well, which is fundamentally different to that culture that we live in as adults. Yeah. And as I said, I love what you said about, you know, trying to always honour and and that that wish that you had as a nine-year-old to accept any invitation to play. And that sounds really beautiful. But I have to say, my afterthought is also how exhausting <laughs> to, <laughs> to accept a child's offer to play all the time. Um, but we also had a moment to chat before we went on the call today. And one of the things we we mentioned or I discussed with you was um, PCIT, which was a piece of research, and I'm going to really grab at it very briefly. But basically, the kind of the concepts at the end of the day were um, parents making time, maybe about 10 minutes a day, to play with a child one on one, where the child was in control of the play, and they found that there was quite um, a, an array of great things that happened for that child's self-esteem and and their psychological health. Did you have any comment about that? Uh, apart from saying I think that's a fabulous piece of research to get out there as widely as possible, uh, I, I'd probably say two things about it. One, I completely agree with that and I think it's a great advice to give people and, and it is really the backbone of the child-led approach that that Virginia Axeline championed in her work around play therapy that's influenced so many other practitioners who use play therapy in their practice, whether it's in very directed ways where the therapist or the adults in charge of the play direction and the therapeutic content, or if it's non-directed or child-led. And as you're suggesting from that research, the child leads the play and comes up with the ideas. So therapeutically, it makes sense in terms of better relationships between parents and kids, it makes sense. But I guess the second point I'd like to make is not only is it scientifically or therapeutically valid but it doesn't just benefit the child it benefits the parent not only because as adults we have better relationships with kids when we hear kids and respond to their need but also because it invites us into a world of play into imagination into spontaneity creativity and fun and I think as adults we don't really spend enough time in that space if we remember that great quote that children on average laugh 300 times a day Mm -hmm. and adults struggle for 20 Wow. When we step into play with children, we allow ourselves opportunities to laugh, to have fun, to be creative, to think other than what we're currently thinking. And even though that feels like a drag and a chore and a big effort to do even that 10 minutes, that 10 minutes can actually feel like three hours if we get into enough of a flow that we forget about time itself. 
and then we kind of step out of that TARDIS of fun and we think, wow, that was just a short amount of time, but I feel so refreshed. I feel like I've got a new burst of energy to do whatever it is that I need to do next, whether it's do the lunches or make the dinner or do the housework or put everyone to bed or whatever it might be. I've got this extra bit of kind of happiness myself now and my child feels better and I feel like I've got more leverage with them to do some of the tough stuff because I've invested something into the relationship. So I think I think it, it, it benefits in lots of ways. And, and actually that's something I've heard more anecdotally from care workers as well, a very experienced lady um, that my children used to spend time with. And she would say, you know, if you come home from work and you're tired but you can give the kids, you know, a few minutes each or a few minutes together, having a laugh together, whatever it might be, just for a few minutes, they're more likely to give you some space anyway. Yes. But if they crave that contact, um, you know, whether it's children or any kind of loved one, I guess, you know, if they crave that contact with you and they've been waiting for it all day, then to keep denying them that, they're only going to get more intense in the way that they demand that. And sometimes that you know, not saying that does lead to poor behaviour, but it's possible that, you know, at times with kids when they just, just can't work out a way to get you um, or get your attention, obviously they can sometimes use less than fun ways to do that. So True. so play therapy from um, what we were talking about before can mean, you know, like sitting down and let the child choose your colouring in pencils or if you I think the example in some of the videos from that particular study show the parent and the child playing Mr. Potato Head and the child um, is in, in control. So the parent says, oh, where should I put this piece? Um, that kind of stuff. But what do you see um, or how could you describe a really generic play therapy session? What would that look like to an onlooker that may be not in the psychology world? Mm, that's a good question. I, I think it looks, I don't know that there is a generic look because every child is different. And every interaction potentially first time around is different as well. I think one of the things that is not uncommon in the work that I do and in the work that I hear colleagues and students do is um, when they're first engaging in child-led play with a child, there can be some initial apprehension. If the invitation is offered to a child that this is a space they can do a lot of the things they'd like to or they could do most of the things that they'd like to. Because most children are so well-managed and so um, hyper-programmed in some way, children aren't necessarily in the main relaxed and self-starting with a stranger around a new task. Some kids are, but not all are. So some kids who might be a little bit anxious to start with or who are used to being told what to do and how to play would look at me in somewhat of a puzzled expression waiting for me to do do something or to tell them what to do, even though I've offered them the chance to do what they'd like to do. So they don't quite believe it's true. It's kind <laughs> of like um, I, I remember um, my sister and I being taken at Christmas time to Grace Brothers Broadway. There was this amazing Santa's Wonderland there. And I remember us walking in and just being completely overwhelmed at the amazing sparkliness of this land and it was kind of I mean I think back to what it was now and it was probably just the lamest display but it was this huge big lovely Santa sitting there with a lovely warm smile on his face and all these toys and little elves taking photographs of us and it was just a fantastic sparkly land and I still remember that sense of wonder and I think there's a moment when children realize in 
therapy or even in in child-led play with parents where they can actually be the boss and they can actually be in control and make decisions for themselves and they have that same sense of wonder and excitement and I think that's the generic gold in this work that they can choose I can ask them 20,000 questions about what's worrying them or following the lead of whoever's referred them for whatever problem they might be manifesting. And they would generally say either I don't know or, yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> so Yes. That's so, is not going to really cut it. But, but giving them a chance to play it out or to draw it out or to act it out or to make a puppet show or a Play-Doh sculpture in a non-directed way, they're far more likely to do it, to enjoy doing it and to do it in a way that's safe for them. So so the generic nature of it is that children will play and the more special part of the generic nature of it is that children have a sense of wonder and excitement and delight in being able to take the lead in play. Okay, yeah. So um, in your article you even talk about some of the neurobiological evidence. Um, To quote you, exactly from the article which I think you're actually also quoting from a piece of research but you said there is emerging neurobiological evidence that therapies that allow for non-verbal enjoyment safety and attunement such as play therapy can you know offer children a more sensitive and appropriate therapy type so there's you know so again it sounds like what you're trying to say there and from the research that play you know changes the brain and changes the way children may perceive their world Mm. not only making sense of what may have happened but what we're trying to say here it can also make sense of how to move forward in the future in terms of uh, relationships and having a sense of power and control over what's going on is that what you're trying to say there yeah there's there's I guess a couple of different elements in in how it works and I think one of the things that's that's important to offer anybody in counseling but particularly children is ways of one, telling a difficult story, but also having a chance to make sense of it in such a way that I can leave it enough alone to move forward and get on with something else. And and talking is one way of doing that. And as adults, and particularly as women, I think we're very good at doing that. But I don't think young children are, and I don't think there's certain clients that are at different times. So certain times, something might have been so traumatic that I actually, I don't want to talk about it, or I don't have the words for it or I don't even remember all of it so the advantage of doing play with children and with adults in other creative ways is that it allows me a way of expressing it that isn't just about words it allows me a way of tapping into the feelings of it to the sensations of it and to the memories about it in a way that can either very consciously and very overtly allow me to tell that story or maybe in a metaphoric sense make as much sense of it as I need So, for example, if I'm doing symbol work or sand tray work with clients, with older clients or even with older kids, sometimes I might tell a story using symbols that might be directly relevant to a difficult event in their life, but it might actually be something that they can't talk about directly, but they can move things around and they can talk about things and they can have actions with things that speak part of that story and that move into some sort of resolution of that story without even necessarily consciously or verbally putting words to it. And I think there's there's a bit of a push in some trauma fields 
to to need people to talk about everything in a whole lot of detail and some people need to do that and some people don't and forcing people to do it and naming things specifically can actually make it worse and re-traumatize people so I think the value of play and the value of creative and symbolic and metaphoric work is that it allows me to talk about it as a client without necessarily being re-traumatized by it yeah that's interesting and there's a previous episode um, with Jane Turner Goldsmith, who talked about writing, and she and we and we discussed very similar that um, sometimes writing about something in the third person, so in a fiction way, like a story, even um, can sometimes also provide that distance from the story that's too hard to use as a connected story to themselves, but somewhat safer at a distance. And, and similar to what you're saying here, sometimes it's safer to use symbols. Um, outside of themselves to 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 move the story around physically and emotionally absolutely absolutely and just picking up that point about stories I think I think for children and adults stories have such beautiful rich metaphors about life and about trouble and about adversity and about heroes and about hope and about resolution that that just a a, a plain narrative can't quite provide um, we've got one of the workshops that we provide is a storytelling workshop for health professionals and I was lucky enough to be able to attend this workshop that um, a colleague of mine ran for us and and everybody in that workshop was so personally moved by the folk stories that she was telling and some of them were from Russia, some of them were from Africa and they're almost like these archetypal stories of journey and of challenge and of success ultimately um, that that you can't not get hooked into, and it's it's just a beautiful and and very uh, deep yet gentle way of working, which I think is really the power in this sort of creative work. Uh, have you come across some of the stuff by Joseph Campbell? Oh yes, yes. Uh, when you were talking about the the journey and the heroes, yeah, that sort of yeah, reminded me very. So again, for, for the listeners, something like yeah, following up Joseph Campbell and some of his, um, I think the way he collected stories about from different cultures and how you know like the wizard of oz star wars um harry potter they're all examples of his work in terms of how he pulled together what were the ingredients that make a great story great um and in terms of the hero's journey yeah. and i think we can all relate to the hero's journey we all we all set out on our on our on our treks with with um with backpacks full of resources and ideas and and dreams and and we meet demons on the road and and we have signposts that direct us forward and we have um, helpful travel companions that that follow the way with us and we fall down ravines and we 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 cross burning deserts and and you know we come to we come to to positive places along the way too. Yeah, that's that's right. So. What about adults? How do you, what would be your comment on play therapy with adults or thera- or adults letting themselves be more playful? Uh, I, I think, I think play for adults is, is both more fraught and more important in some ways. I think when adults think about therapy, they often think about talking. And I think often that's what we need to do as adults. We need to talk things through. And I think there can be a, a time at which something other than talking can can stand out as useful and necessary. And I think perhaps what's important to invite adults into in a in a creative therapy sense is 
is something that might be new or something that might be a revisit of something that's old, but not necessarily something that they're really familiar with as part of their everyday. So there's there's all sorts of creative therapies that are out there. Dance movement therapy is one that's a relatively, it's, it's not relatively new, but it's still relatively in its infancy as a, an industry, if you like. That wouldn't be something that I would re- recommend to anyone in the Australian Ballet or the Sydney Dance Company or the Bangara Dance Company. I think if something that's creative and and expressive and playful is already part of our mainstream life, I think it's harder to relate to it as a therapeutic outlet. Yes. So I think play, ideally for adults, is something that's out of what might be a regular part of your life currently so it's something that's new or that's old but it hasn't been kind of touched for a while ideally it's something that's non-competitive it's something that if it's done with others allows for collaboration it's something that takes us into a state of flow takes us away from a sense of linear time and concrete reality as we know it's something that's imaginal something that's enlivening and engaging and something that gives me a perspective other than what I would have had had I not engaged in it. Yeah. So what have you learned about people through your work with play therapy? I think in my work in play therapy and in my work in counselling generally, I've learned that whoever we are and wherever we're from and at whatever age we are, we need to be heard we need to be cared about and we need to be respected. Mm, true. So what about yourself? What have you learned about yourself through your experiences as a counselling psychologist? The more experience that I have and the older that I get, the more I believe in trusting my instincts, that deep down I really do believe I know pretty quickly what's going on and where people might be coming from. Mm, nice. Nice. I've also realised that sleep is critical. (laughs) Nine hours a night, if I can get it, just makes me so much more happy and productive. And that laughter is really important and I should try and do it as much as possible. Definitely. And I agree with you on the sleep. Um, Yeah, lots of it and good quality sleep. Okay, what about three things or some weekly rituals that you participate in that you use to keep yourself grounded and balanced? I know this is really not politically correct, but I really love doing laundry. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So there's something about taking dirty clothes and putting them in the washing machine with some really nice smelling soap powder and having really nice kind of just damp and beautiful clean smelling clothes that I can put out onto the line. So no matter what else I'm doing or what conferences I'm presenting at, coming home and being able to wash the socks is just such a lovely grounding <laughs> and then taking it all crisp and clean in at the end of the day. So that's that's my, one of my number ones. Um, exercise is really important to me. I love walking, cycling, going to the gym, um, swimming. Getting out in nature is also really important to me. Um, and just very practically making sure that at least once a day I sit at a table and have one meal with someone that I care about. Oh, nice. That's lovely. So what about you? How can people find you if they want to know more about your presenting or programs or things that you're running? Uh, Probably best port of call is my website, Sydney Centre for Creative Change, and my details are on that. 
Wonderful. Well, I've really enjoyed talking to you, Jackie. I think there's lots for us young and old to learn about adding a bit more play into our lives. And I think it's really important, as you said, you know, finding that something that's a bit outside of what you would normally do that gives you that sense of playfulness. Um, It might be something old, as you said, that you used to do before. And I've loved having you, the TAP listener, with us today. Please spread the word and tell your friends. If you've got a friend that you think would really benefit from hearing from people like Jackie about play therapy and some of the other topics that we've had lately, tell them about the show and get them to subscribe to Tap in iTunes or from the Wellness Couch and make sure that you give the show a five-star rating in iTunes so we can make the show much more visible to the other people that might want to listen. If you enjoy the podcast and learning about strategies, please, please pop over to the website, carriethompsoncasey.com. And thank you so much for joining me. I really ha- love having you there and sharing this information with you. See you on the next episode of The Abnormal Psychologist, where we share real people stories and give you real ideas so that you can realize your potential. Take care. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.